The expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden is one of the oldest stories to survive to the present day and, as such, has been interpreted in a multitude of ways. I myself contributed concept art used in backgrounds of a short film that retold the Eden parable in the style of an early European silent film like George Méliès. It was amazing. Thank you. Uh, Eden can symbolize lost innocence. Eden can be used to reinforce patriarchy. Eden is used as a metaphor regarding humanity's self-destructive impulses. Eden is also seen as a historical event by scriptural literalists, but let's not get into that. Uh, my favorite take on the Eden myth is Mark Twain's short story that frames the events through diary entries from both Adam and Eve. Adam's account of the expulsion is roughly the same as Genesis, but Eve's perspective is unsurprisingly different. According to her log, the fruit of the tree wasn't a factor at all. Instead, God ushers Adam and Eve out of the garden once Eve discovers fire. You see, Eden wasn't meant to be humanity's permanent home. It was a set of training wheels that was designed to come off once they, it was no longer needed. Eve had demonstrated an empirical and curious mind that could retain and wield knowledge, so that meant that she was now ready to experience the real world. The safe, pleasant fantasy kingdom of Eden had finished serving its purpose, in other words. Naturally, since I mentioned this story in the intro, I see parallels between Mark Twain's Eve in the world of Pleasantville, uh, this recording subject. Pleasantville has a number of blunt, Edenic metaphors in its subtext, but <laughs> I think there's more to it than that. Pleasantville is a nice, cozy, and idyllic wonderland that provides for its inhabitants on a level comparable to a mother's womb. Pleasantville is also, however, not a real place, and it never was. Living in Pleasantville is to deny both reality and also the full spectrum of human experience. At some point, inevitably, the repressive and sanitized fabrication has to come down. We're not meant to stay in the womb. We're not meant to live out our lives in Eden or Pleasantville. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is Rachel, who, uh, this is your first time seeing it. Um, yes. I mean, I was vaguely aware of it. All I knew was that it was, like, some kind of, like, you know, 50s vintage aesthetics and then people become colorized. I, I'm really glad and excited that Ryan picked me to be his co-host for this because, like, this movie is my shit. Like, I am such a big sucker for, like, vintage aesthetics being used as like a way to to just to hide horror. Yeah. Yeah, like less than five minutes in, you're like, so this is like a baby's first David Lynch? Yeah, I mean, I was watching and like the, at least in the beginning part, kind of like the surreal sort of quality to it. I was like, this is reminding me of Mulholland Drive. And like, I've seen Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks. I think I must have seen something else Lynchian, but I... Blue Velvet. I have not seen there's, Blue Velvet. There's a lot of Blue Velvet in Pleasantville. Okay, well, I'll have to watch Blue Velvet sometime. It's on the list. And also, like, I watched most of WandaVision, and I loved the first two episodes, because that, to me, was the kind of story I was hoping and wanting it to be, and the more marvelly it got, the less interested I was. Like I said, I like, you know, using vintage past aesthetics as a way to hide horror. Because, like, if I was suddenly, like, you suddenly slapped me back to 1958, I would freak out and not the fun kind. I don't care that I get to wear cute clothes. 
I'd have to deal with all of the bullshit, and then I would be legally obligated to try to stop JFK from being assassinated. Yeah, so you would freak out worse than Reese Witherspoon? Yes, I would have freaked out worse than Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, uh, Pleasantville, <laughs> I saw this when I was very young. Um, Did you see I, it in theaters? No, I didn't see it in theaters. Okay. I bought a used VHS from the video rental store close to my parents' oh, house. Oh, so that's how long ago this was. I mean, the movie is, like, not quite 30 years old. Yeah, getting there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this was very important to me uh, in my development as a young adult, and mm-hmm. it, it hit me pretty hard the first time I saw it. I haven't seen it in years, and mm-hmm. when I was like, when I get around to doing Pleasantville on the show, because I kind of feel like I have to, mm-hmm. I should get somebody who hasn't seen it before, and it turns out Rachel hadn't. Yeah, but and like, this seemed like it was up your alley. Yeah, exactly. The thing is, even if I had seen Pleasantville before, and if you mentioned that you wanted to do it, I would have been like, Ryan... Ryan, please, please pick me. I want to talk about this movie so bad. So I, I loved it. I, ha- I was, like, really into it while we were watching it. Yeah, and you kept getting interrupted by calls from your friends and your I know, dad. I was I, like, I, 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 felt, Amazon <laughs> I felt kind of bad because I kind of snapped at my friend when, when they called me. And I was like, <gasps> then I, like, just messaged them. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do it. But it was like, the, the cherry blossoms. <laughs> Yeah, the bit where they're they're in the car cruising yes, through the cherry blossoms. I That's know. a beautiful shot. My favorite shot. Yes. It's honestly it's a stunning movie. Alright, plot recap. Usually I copy paste the Wikipedia article and maybe tweak it here or there, mm-hmm. but this one I rewrote it top down because I didn't like whoever well, edited it. You said it. that it like skipped out on like several of the very emotional moments. Like the the bit with Betty's makeup, but we'll yes. get to that. Okay. Didn't mention right. Betty's makeup. What the fuck? I know, right? Our central characters are high schoolers David and his sister Jennifer, who lead very different lives and very different social casts. Should we mention that it is also the 90s? It is the late 90s, and very we, are, 90s. we are introduced to the late 90s world, not only like an extreme close-up of someone playing with their tongue piercing, but also lectures about how the job market's going to collapse, and how climate change is going to be a thing, and how um, STDs are an increasing problem, all the things we have solved since 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course. Uh, Jennifer is a popular kid with a robust social life, while David is a nerdy, lonely outcast who um, deals with the terrors of the outside world with a weird obsession with Pleasantville, an old 1950s sitcom about the idyllic Parker family. And it's played on this, like, sort of TV land thing. Oh, yeah, and I love that because I was a child who watched a lot of TV land. Like the fake advertisement for the Pleasantville Marathon yes. made me think of the uh, Nick at Night bumpers where mm-hmm. they'd sort of like poke gentle fun at the uh, tropes associated yeah. with the sitcom. but when I said that I watched a lot of TV land, I watched a great deal of I Love Lucy, the Andy Griffiths show, Gilligan's Island, even a little bit of Gunsmoke. One evening, while their mother is out trying to kickstart a post-divorce dating life, David and Jennifer fight over the television, breaking the remote control in the process. A mysterious TV repairman... Who's played by Don Knotts, and I was like, wait, is that who I think it is? (laughs) It's like, if you think it's Don Knotts, that's him. Anyways, he just manifests, and Mm -hmm. impressed by David's knowledge of Pleasantville trivia, gives him a strange new remote... When they use it, David and Jennifer are transported into the black and white world of Pleasantville itself. David, through the Parker's television, pleads with the repairman to release them, but the repairman insists that, since Pleasantville is so much better than the real world and David is such an expert, David and Jennifer should appreciate the opportunity to live in it. Mm-hmm. 
forced to act as the show's characters, Bud and Mary Sue. I've gone back and forth whether I should refer to them as those character names throughout the rest of the plot, because that's how everyone yeah. calls them, but I'm going to just call them David and Jennifer. Yeah, I think that that's their names. David and Jennifer explore the wholesome but strange and um, somewhat unsettling town. Yeah, well, it, it, I think the kind of, like, just sort of interesting existential horror of it is that, like, everybody only ever needs to know what they need to do. They're very absolutely basic sitcom lives. Like, later on, there's no toilet in the bathroom at the soda shop. Which I was like, then I, like, ask you, like, almost immediately, I'm like, are they all smooth down there? Are they, like, Barbie and Ken? I was like, we'll get to that. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, your comment just reminded me of um, Mm -hmm. the scene in The Once and Future King where war is being transformed into the various animals, and each of them is, like, a parable for, like, some aspect of uh, sociopolitical life in modern-day England. And when war gets transformed into an ant, that's a metaphor for fascism. Mm -hmm. Because when he's in an ant, he doesn't have any thoughts other than done and not done. Mm -hmm. He's not allowed to think anything else. Anyways, the weather in Pleasantville is always perfect. High 72, low 72, not a cloud in the sky. (laughs) Nobody on the high school basketball team is capable of missing a shot. Oh my god, that part was so funny. He like hurls it and like off of the ceiling and it still sinks. One can eat piles of bacon and pancakes without gaining weight. Toilets aren't necessary. (laughs) All of the books in the town are blank. And firefighters focus on rescuing cats from trees due to the lack of anything being able to burn. On an even more Twilight Zone level, the citizens of Pleasantville are unaware that anything exists outside of their town, as all roads circle back with no escape. David insists that Pleasantville is perfectly fine as it is and that he and Jennifer must stay in character to avoid disrupting things. In order to maintain the show's plot, David convinces Jennifer to go out on a date with high school athlete Skip Martin. But things take a turn when she initiates sex with him. Sexuality of any kind didn't exist in Pleasantville. I mean, everyone slept in separate beds. Yep, didn't exist in Pleasantville prior to Jennifer introducing it. Skip doesn't even recognize his own erection. He needs to be told (laughs) that is a normal thing for penises to do. Yeah, because I was thinking of like, um, have you ever seen Under the Skin? No. Okay, well there's a scene in it where the alien is trying to have sex. And she's basically like a monster in a human suit. And she realizes that she doesn't have a vagina in the middle of it as she's, like, exploring her, you know, humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be, like, a horrifying moment. I mean, it is, but that's what I was expecting. I was like, he's going to be a Ken doll. He'll be Ken doll. And it turns out he was not actually a Ken doll. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of happy that the movie did not go there, (laughs) although I was fully expecting it. Gradually, parts of Pleasantville change from black and white to color, including flowers and the faces of people who experience new bursts of emotion. As the younger citizens of Pleasantville begin connecting to these sensations, foreign concepts such as literature, pop music, and inclement weather begin to manifest and startle the socially conservative people who run the community. One of the first adults to explore these radical changes is Betty Parker, uh, David and Jennifer's TV mom. I thought that the scene where she asks jennifer what is sex was such kind of like a funny sort of little like reversal of the usual like mom explains to her her daughter you know and mommy and daddy really like each other yeah jennifer even goes when they want to um express their affection for each other in a physical way Mm -hmm. and then we dissolve yeah 
When Jennifer shows a curious Betty how to masturbate, her eventual orgasm causes a tree to burst into flames. I love that scene. I just thought that, like, a light was going to shine under her door or something. David notices the fire and <laughs> then teaches the perplexed firemen how to use their hoses to put it out, earning both praise and the curious attention from the townsfolk. It was really funny. Like, he runs to the fire department and he's like, Fire! Fire! And everyone's just looking at him like, huh? He goes, cat! <laughs> <laughs> like, where's the cat? <laughs> it's like, so I don't know. It was in that one fireman when they're like spraying the hoses. He's just like, oh, so that's what they do. Later, David finds Betty fully colorized, and since the black and white citizens of Pleasantville are increasingly more fearful of colored citizens, he helps her apply gray makeup in order to mask her true nature. Yeah, by the time they were like, colored people i was like oh my god they invented racism because because this is the 1950s super idealized there's no social issues so there's no black people put a pin in that one yeah there's some problems with that we'll we'll get back to them yes we'll get back to that later david also teaches things to bill johnson owner of the soda fountain where bud works Bill is thrilled by the prospect of doing things outside of the hyper-specific routines that he usually lives by, particularly when it comes to the murals he paints every Christmas. So sweet. David shows Bill a colorful modern art book from the library, sparking Bill's interest in painting all year round. The scene always gets me when I watch I it when he's flipping through the book. It's so good, and he doesn't think that he can do it. And David's like, well, you can't now because you just started. And then he's just like, no, not that. It's just the colors, the the, the people mm-hmm. who see them. I bet they don't know how lucky they are. That that, that line just pierces I, me in I my know. heart. As more and more townsfolk become colored, Jennifer begins questioning why she remains in black and white despite her sexual indulgences. She's like, I've had ten times more sex than all those girls. They spend an hour in the backseat of cars. Suddenly they're technicolor. Mm -hmm. David comments that the process might not be about sex, which is demonstrated when Jennifer's budding interest in the writing of D.H. Lawrence sets off her transformation. Uh, David's own transformation begins after he recognizes the hollowness of Pleasantville's status quo and begins showing his peers that there's nothing to fear from reading, rain, or growing as a human being. He even works up the courage to ask a classmate out on a date, something he was never able to do in the outside world. There's a pointed scene in Act 1 where it looks like he's trying to uh, talk to a girl, (laughs) but it ends up he's just like talking to himself while she's 30 feet away and talking to some other dude. Yep, I know. I mean, honestly, that's one of the reasons why I really like the casting of Tobey Maguire here. He's so good at being just endearingly dorky. Don't you just want to like pinch his little cheeks? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The TV repairman angrily confronts David about the changes he and Jennifer have been causing in Pleasantville, but this does little to deter David. Yeah, eventually he does like... No, I'll keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Recognizing a shared passion for self-discovery, Bill and Betty begin developing feelings for each other, and they fall in love when Bill recognizes that she's been hiding her colored skin under gray makeup. He helps her remove it. it. Oh, that scene is just so intimate. Like, this is a really horny movie, and I love that it's horny, and I think that that is, like, one of the most, like, tenderest and intimate non-sex scenes ever. Now unable to connect with her husband, George, (laughs) Betty leaves home. George, horrified by Betty's new unwillingness to submissively cater to his whims, takes his problems to Pleasantville Mayor Big Bob. I just love the moment where he's like, honey, I'm home, and he's just walking around the house absolutely clueless, and he's like, 
where's my dinner? He just doesn't know how to do anything. He, he knows how to open a can of olives, I think. Yeah, but that's probably so that he could make a martini. He, along with other affluent members of the community, see the colored children and independent wives as an unnatural and pernicious threat to Pleasantville's values. They resolve to put a stop to all the social progress that's undermining their power and keeping their wives from cleaning the house and making their dinner. Uh, a segregationist ban on colored people is soon initiated in public venues. This comes to a head when Bill paints a nude mural of Betty on the window of uh, his mullet shop. He does it in a German expressionist style, which is different I from his Cuba Santa. I know, his Cuba Santa. I love the mural. I, when you're watching, I'm like, oh, are we going to get a draw me like one of your French girls moment? And you're like, keep watching. <laughs> so good. The mural causes a riot, uh, the soda fountain is destroyed, book burnings are initiated, and people who are colored are attacked on the street. David notices Betty getting catcalled by a gang of black and white boys and, demonstrating his newfound self-assurance, defends her from their harassment, which is pointedly sexual. There's mm -hmm. a point where, like, we consider these color people to be second-class citizens, and that means that uh, we can just be openly gropey at them. Yeah, I was like, you've brought... The Pandora's box has been opened. This is the moment when David finally gets his color. Mm -hmm. uh, shocked by the violence, the town fathers institute new laws that insist upon pleasant civility. However, this take on civility includes forbidding people from reading literature, listening to jazz or rock music, having sex, using any paint colors besides black, white, or gray, or teaching things in classrooms that the uh, town's authority figures do not like. That what is one... this, Florida? Yeah, no, this uh, feels pretty relevant now. I know, now. right? I was just like, ugh, well, this sounds really familiar to me. Oh. Defying the law, David and Bill paint a colorful mural depicting both their hopes and the tumult of the social order, which prompts their arrest. Like lots of little things like, the, you know, the teens having sex in Lover's Lane, mm -hmm. uh, the burning books ascending to the heavens on angel wings, a couple yeah. kissing openly. Yeah, I was like, wow, you turned it into the actual 50s. Put a pin in that one, too. <laughs> uh, brought to trial in front of the entire town, David and Bill passionately defend their actions. David insists that the changes everyone is going through are natural, healthy, and even inevitable. David then questions George about his feelings for his estranged wife, and when George realizes that his feelings for Betty are at least a little deeper than his need for her domestic services, he becomes colored, too. Uh, this spurs practically every other black and white resident of Pleasantville to gain their colors as well. Big Bob remains steadfast, but his mounting anger at David eventually colors him on top of everything else. Celebrating their victory over the humiliated and fleeing Big Bob, the townsfolk leave the courthouse and notice that a nearby store is selling color televisions broadcasting programs from the outside world. Uh, we then see that the roads in Pleasantville are now able to reach other communities, most notably Springfield, the, the town in Father Knows Best. I'm assuming it's not the Simpsons one. And not yet. Give it a few years. I'd imagine that Pleasantville and Simpsons Springfield are a little further apart. Mm -hmm. uh, with Pleasantville changed, David elects to return to the world that he came from. Jennifer, on the other hand, chooses to continue her new life in the TV world. Bidding farewell to his sister, his new girlfriend, and Betty, David uses the remote control to return to discover that he'd only been gone for an hour. Uh, he comes upon his mother, who's crying over her failure to go through with getting back into dating. He tries to comfort her insecurities, assuring her that nothing has to be perfect. 
We then see the TV repairman, who seems to be accepting of the events that occurred. Uh, he has this little warm little smile as he's backlit and drives off. Uh, this leads me to personally headcanon that this whole thing was his plan the whole time. Yeah, his, his motivations are kind of ambiguous. A concluding montage reveals the citizens of Pleasantville exploring their new lives, which includes Jennifer attending college and reading with some other guy, some hot dude with glasses. Mmm, yeah, we love that. Yeah, her tastes have changed. Yeah. <laughs> no more, wow, that's Paul Walker in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, that's a hot guy with glasses. I'm deep now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final scene is Betty and George contemplating their future together, which is punctuated by George suddenly being replaced at Betty's side by bill the correct answer (laughs) yeah i figured you were gonna like the final shot yeah All right, for the development of this film, uh, writer-director Gary Ross is the son of Hollywood screenwriter Arthur Ross, best known for uh, scripting The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Very nice. Ross was blacklisted during McCarthyism, which Gary Ross cites as the germ for Pleasantville. This does not surprise me. No, it does not. I was about to ask, what was the, like, idea behind this? Because we love a good vengeance subversion. (laughs) This is a very creative way of doing it. Naturally, Gary Ross also watched a lot of homogenous TV sitcoms during his youth, like Donna Reed, Father Knows Best, Dennis the Menace, and so on. Uh, he claims that these shows were escapist fantasy for him. They felt safe and comforting when contrasted against his life as the son of a struggling Hollywood creative type. Donna Reed in particular, have you ever watched any? Um, no I have not, but I did watch a lot of, like, Leave It to Beaver as a kid. Yeah, Donna Reed, uh, it's... Not very good in a way that you're expecting a situation comedy to be Mm -hmm. like. None of the dialogue reads as jokes. It definitely needs a laugh track to register as humor. Mm -hmm. Like, even back then, by those standards, like, I can tell when I Love Lucy has jokes, Donna Reed don't have jokes. Well, that's because Lucille Ball is a gifted comedian. Yeah, Donna Reed is giving you a sanitized, comforting, aspirational fantasy with the hot middle-aged woman. And by middle age, I mean like 35. Practically ancient. <laughs> Ross has repeatedly stated that Pleasantville was deeply personal to him. Uh, he Not has surprising. Yeah, he has said that the central theme lies in how personal shame can lead to wider socio-political repression. Um, mm-hmm. As Ross puts it, when one is afraid of certain pieces of themselves, it can sometimes lead to projecting such fear onto others. I recently read that grinder use always spikes around CPAP, <laughs> and that consumption of trans porn is most prominent in the Bible Belt, especially Texas. So I think there's a grain of truth in that notion. Oh, absolutely. There's a part of like, I see you as subhuman, and I think about you while I masturbate, but then I go out and I support laws that uh, mm-hmm. want to stamp you out of existence. And I-, I bet that trans sex workers who do porn know this. And oh, I don't, yeah. I don't know like how they feel about that i don't know i would feel very conflicted yeah i mean i follow um somebody on twitter who used to do who's transgender and she used to do sex work and she says that one of her best clients was a priest of course Although I'm like, man, father, how are you affording that, though? Honestly. I knew my collection plate was going somewhere. Yes. Anyway. Uh, The lack of toilets uh, is a reference to the Hayes Code Mm -hmm. banning the presence of toilets until 1960. Nobody fucks and nobody shits. 
Alfred Hitchcock convinced censors that a toilet flush was integral to the shower scene in Psycho. They were okay with the shower scene in Psycho, except for the toilet flush. Oh my god. But that's kind of, like, funny, though, when it comes to, like, censorship. People don't care about, like, violence, but boobies? You know, that's bad. And it's funny, though, to know, like, what sex scenes in a movie are really controversial. And, like, one of them is just, like, a scene where a man is going down on a woman. You don't see anything. Both of them are pretty much fully clothed. And that was scandalous. Well, it was a close-up of Hedy Lamar's face enjoying herself. You can't oh, have that. yeah, I... Oh, we can't <laughs> see that, no. Woman come? Fuck you. I know. I mean, I like the fact there's a scene of a woman masturbating in this movie. Broadcast TV would keep toilets away from the sensitive eyes of impressionable <laughs> Americans until well into the 1970s. <laughs> uh, the separated beds is a much more well-known relic of 1950s TV censorship that Pleasantville riffs on. The blank books was a reference to how prop books and most TV sitcoms were blank. Mm -hmm. J.T. Walsh's bowling alley speech is a nod to Patton, while the colored section of the courtroom references to Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I kind of, I was like, yep. The Kill a Mockingbird. Although, honestly, the whole idea of, like, a 1950s-esque town with, that has, like, a bunch of repression and music that ends in a trial, I was like, that's footloose. I played one of the mean church ladies in high school. <laughs> uh, the World of Art book is a prop created for the film and it's, was never widely published. It's so good, though. Since Pleasantville takes place in 1958, the book lists Picasso as a living artist. Oh, we love that kind of attention to detail. Yeah. Uh, Pleasantville was shot on the Warner Brothers backlot, which means that Pleasantville features buildings used for Gidget, Bewitched, and Hazel, uh, as well as the Partridge family. Uh, the Murtaugh home from Lethal Weapon is also visible, as well as uh, some bits that were used in the 1950s scenes for Back to the Future. Yeah, I kind of figured that. I thought it looked, like, vaguely familiar to me, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good, just, like, incidental detail is that it's already designed to make you think and associate with, like, ah, yes, the past. The Parker home was built specifically for the movie. I, I looked up to see, like, did they ever use it for anything else, and I couldn't find anything. That's too bad. For the scene where Bud applies gray makeup to Betty, he is actually painting her green. This means that <laughs> Joan Allen is painted fully green for this close-up where uh, Bill Johnson removes her disguise. Uh, there was some concern on set that being painted green would negatively affect Allen's performance and that she'd feel awkward or something. Uh, I don't think they needed to worry. No, I would love to see some behind-the-scenes footage of how they did some of this. You know, speaking of which, um, let's get into the cast here. First, we have Tobey Maguire as David slash Bud Parker. He's great cast choice. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't like a name actor yet. This is still during the period where he and Leonardo DiCaprio were competing for roles. Like every noteworthy thing they did for like the late 90s to the early 2000s, the other guy almost got. Mm -hmm. So that means me to think that... they were filling in from where River Phoenix basically left the, that hole, I, I think, too. Do you think like, wait, wait, wait. So Leo was almost in Pleasantville. Yeah, and I think it would have been fine casting too, but I think there's an endearing quality of Tobey Maguire that Leonardo DiCaprio just doesn't have. Yeah, Maguire's um, readings charm. here, yeah, especially he's awkward and trying to find his footing, and he sells that a lot better than sometimes either Leo or Re River Phoenix. Would. Yeah, and like sometimes his voice cracks too when he's talking, and he also does not have a face that screams, I have only ever seen an iPhone, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> 
I also Reese think that, Witherspoon just a little bit, but she ends up blending in. I think he's a good-looking guy, but he's not Hollywood hot. No, he's cute. Yeah, and uh, when he was cast as Spider-Man, my first thought was the guy from Pleasantville. Oh, he's perfect. Oh, yeah, he's great. If this was, like, his, you know, audition for, you know, paying Peter Parker, it's a good one. But also, Leo almost got Spider-Man. Yeah, I don't think that would have worked no, at all. No, no, no. No, I think Leonardo DiCaprio would be a better uh, comic book supervillain than a superhero. Oh, yeah. I mean, can we just, like, you know, shave his head and make him Lex Luthor? That would be really interesting. Him being bald, I mean. <laughs> yeah, moving on, we have Reese Witherspoon as Jennifer slash Mary Sue Parker. She's great. I mean, also, I like Reese Witherspoon. She's, like, another one of those actors that just, like, has that charm. I mean, I love her in Election as Tracy Flick. This is, like, the beginning of her hot streak. Election is, like, a year later, Legally Blonde, like, a year after that. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, I know that she's a famous movie star and all that, but I still feel that she's underrated. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, it's, I work in a bookstore, and her Reese's um, Club book picks are actually pretty good. I know she's, like, trying to do more producing. She really wanted to play Amy Elliott Dunn in Gone Girl, and... I honestly think she would have been a much better casting choice than Rosamund Pike, even though Rosamund Pike does a great job, though, but love me some wreaths with her spoon. You know, one thing that left out at me for this viewing that I didn't notice, like, you know, when I was a kid, is just how good Witherspoon and McGuire are against each other. Oh, yeah. Like, the, the way that they're, like, playing off each other and, like, combatively bickering. Like, like that stuff siblings. is good. And then, as they both mature and they mm -hmm. grow and they grow together, like, yeah, it all, it all comes together. Just very nice from both of them. I agree. Alright, uh, next up is Jeff Daniels as Bill Johnson. I was very surprised to see him there, and I was like, I mean, I always like Jeff Daniels and, and things. Another person who's like, that guy's a name, but I mm -hmm. still feel that he's underrated. Although, he, he has been, like, rising in esteem lately. Like, when, when I saw Pleasantville, I only really knew him from Dumb and Dumber. And then, after doing, like, lots of performances as good as this, when they made another Dumb and Dumber, like, 25 years Come later. Here. Yeah, it felt like he was doing Jim Carrey a favor by coming back. <laughs> yeah, um, when I think of him, I honestly remember him from Gettysburg. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's just playing, like, this wide-eyed, optimistic dope. Like, he's just, like, this mm -hmm. little kid in a grown man's body. He is, because he's just discovering, like, the real world as, like, a grown-ass man. And, you know, there's moments that are so sad. Like, when we, we first meet him, uh, Bud's late for work, or, you know, David Bud, and mm -hmm. the routine is just so ingrained in him, he's just wiping the counter until David gets there, but it takes too long, so he starts taking the finish off of the I rag. know. I was like, honestly, in, like, some ways, I feel like Pleasantville is definitely a horror movie that's not a horror movie. Oh, yeah, there are definitely shots that could be in horror movies. I, I feel like some of the way it's, like, filmed, like, some of the very, like, intent front views of people made me think of horror movie for some reason. Especially when they're about to reveal that they've been colored. Yes. It has, a, like, a lot of very, like, 1930s universal, don't look at me, I'm disfigured now. Mm-hmm. All right, and um, then we have the best performance in the film, oh. Joan Allen as uh, Betty Parker. Ross cites her performance as the best in the film. Betty was my favorite character. Like, I know it's about David and Jennifer, but Betty, I love her so much. I always love a housewife yearning for more, 
and getting it and you know just like I think that they were able to sell you know the desire and the relationship between Bill and Betty so easily just by because they don't really have a lot of screen time to develop it like just the looks between them and that is a sign of true chemistry uh, yeah, and just, um, like, every character goes through a dynamic transformation mm -hmm. for the film, but Betty the bat more than anyone. Yes. And just the way that Alan gives various little line readings, mm -hmm. she just, every single thing that she says, she adds more to it than she needed to. Like, you know, the scene where um, Jennifer is telling her what sex is, yes. and she's like, what is sex? And he's like, do you really want to know? Yes, tell me. And she's like, well, your father wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Or, um, you know, when she's confronting George and he's like, well, you can come back. And she's like, I don't want to. Yeah, or when she's like, I'm not going to the meeting tonight. She's like... It's not for me. Yes. She's embraced it after being ashamed. And I looked up her career because I haven't actually seen her in anything besides this. Yeah, I was like, she's really good. What else has she been in? She's mostly a stage actress. Okay, well then good for her. Um, honestly. But yeah, this is also in the middle of a hot streak where she was just, every movie she was in was collecting awards. Before this, she was in a mid-90s biopic about Richard Nixon. She played Pat. Very nice. I mean, I, I'm under the impression that it, that one's probably sloppy Oscar bait, but I bet she's good in it. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, then we have William H. Macy as George Parker. <laughs> I feel like this part was made for William H. Macy, and it honestly, his, like, bumbling, like, 50s-esque thing, it just made me think of Fargo. He does have uh, an intense TV dad face. Yes. Uh, William H. Macy is great in everything, and he's mm -hmm. great in this, although George is a much smaller character than everyone we've talked about so far. But yeah, the, the part where he's just like wandering through the house, he's, getting wet, asking where funny. his dinner is. Yeah, that's yep. just instant comedy. That being said, I do think that like if Macy was Bill, he would have nailed Bill too. Oh yeah, I think so. I, I agree. But yeah, yeah, you get the little moments in the end where he's sitting in the jail cell with David and, you know... He's he brought him some olives because he can't cook. And he sort of, like, <laughs> naively asked David about how the change is upsetting him and maybe can people change back. And David's like, I think so, but it's harder. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but I'm used to things the way they are. This is scary. Yes. And, and then we have J.T. Walsh as Big Bob. Um, I, I don't know, he has like a, hey, it's that guy face, but I do not recognize him. Um, actually, the term, hey, that guy, was coined because of him. Really? Yeah, he's a character actor who's in like a shitload of things, but he never became a famous name. Oh, well, uh, good for him, I guess. <laughs> uh, this is his final performance. Oh, well, you know what, at least he got to go out with a bang. Yeah, he died right afterwards, sudden heart attack. Oh. He was only like 55. Jesus. In terms of Big Bob, like, he's playing the town's most obvious fascist, but he's mm -hmm. a polite, civil fascist. Yes, he's a family values villain. He's like every conservative guy now who's like, well, we can't have black people and queer people off changing things. We can't have kids reading books that might upset them or their parents. And I was like, yeah, but we, we can't be obvious about it. Yeah. We, 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 it's not the right way to do it. He's we gotta... not too ridiculously strong, man. It's a thinly sketched out character, but Walsh is a professional character actor, so he's able to bring what he can to it. And mm -hmm. like, the scene where he's like, well, it's dangerous out there. Thank goodness we're in a bowling alley. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Like, that was in the trailer. It's mentioned in most of the contemporary reviews. Uh, everyone seems to like that bit. Well, where else would they go? 
Uh, then we have Paul Walker as Skip Martin. Yeah, I was like, Paul Walker? What is he Baby doing? Paul I know, right? Baby Paul Walker. He's such a bean pole in this. I know. Um, you know what? It made me reminded me that he was honestly in the running up to play Anakin Skywalker and lost out to Hayden Christensen. Uh, Skip is a super minor character in this, but because Paul Walker did all those very popular Fast and the Furious movies, he is distracting. Yeah, I mean, also, it's he's kind of like James Martin in the way that it's sort of like, well, we need a generically handsome man for this. Just bring us a handsome man. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have mentioned in the Fast and the Furious reviews that I do not like Walker as a, an actor. I do think he's a bit wooden, but mm-hmm. in this one, he's just going like, gee, golly gosh, Willikers, and it kind of works. Yeah, and then, like, the, the, I think the best scene where he has to act is when he gets a, when he gets a boner and he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make assumptions about Walker uh, in his personal life. I bet he can fuck. I mean, he was dating a 17-year-old at the time of his death. Oh, I didn't know that. Alright, then we have um, Jane Kaczmierek as uh, David and Jennifer's mother in the real world. She's only in two scenes, but since she's the mom and Malcolm in the middle, yeah, I that's why I was like, point her out. Uh, that's why I was like, what, wait, what is she doing here? Another famous sitcom mom. Malcolm in the middle hadn't happened yet. Oh, okay. All right. So retroactive. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and I like her in this, but that's just because I like Malcolm in the middle. It's like, ooh, it's her. I know, but if I had, they had the dad could have been Brian Cranston. <laughs> What's really interesting is that I thought if after Malcolm in the Middle ended, she would have the more interesting post-Malcolm career, but yeah, Brian Cranston all the way. Now it's like, did you know that, that Walter White was in a sitcom? <laughs> yeah. Now uh, it's weird seeing him do like comedic stuff in between like high drama. I mean, based on his social media presence and his like self-designed website and how he comes off in interviews, Hal and Malcolm in the Middle is much closer to his real personality than any of the grim, dark characters he's played. Yeah, since. I mean, like I, he's a he's a giant doof. What, what, what I've heard is that a lot of the ridiculous stuff that they like, they would do to him and Malcolm in the Middle was just them being like, "Let's see how much stuff we can do, what we can do to Brian Cranston before he freaks out." He never freaked out. So they were like, "All right, I guess we're sticking him in spandex this episode." But yeah, somebody put has Merrick in some adult prestige TV show where she gets to lose her shit and choose scenery, because I'll watch that. Yes. Anyways, uh, then we have Don Knotts as TV repairman. I mean, honestly, it was a nice nod, and I know you, that the part was written for Dick Van Dyke, but I feel like Don Knotts is a better choice. I was like... Barney Fife? What are you doing here? I mean, I would have been fine with Dick Van Dyke, Uh but yeah, Knotts is a presence, Mm -hmm. and he is very intimately tied to that era. Not that Dick Van Dyke isn't, but Mm -hmm. it's just good to see him and stuff. Yeah. Uh, This was his last live-action film performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would continue to do TV and animation voiceover until his death in 2006. In fact, he was too busy to go over uh, and do loops, so a um, character actor named Craig Shoemaker was hired to do a Don Knotts impression for all the voiceover parts. Oh, I-, I couldn't tell it wasn't yeah, Knotts, me neither. so good job. Yeah, yay. We love to see it. Uh, I read that Jenny Lewis played one of the teens, probably one of the last things she did before she transferred over to being an indie rock musician. <laughs> and then I kept reading that Jenna Fisher is supposedly an extra in this film, and I, I was looking all over for yeah. her. Yeah. Uh, but then again, I also, when I was, like, looking for her, I was basically looking for her as Pam, forgetting that she would be in, like, 50s clothes. Although, honestly, Pam dressed very 50s, although her hair, not so much. Yeah, uh, camera operator Brent Hirschman worked a 19-hour day one, Jesus. Uh, on, 
on uh, during the Pleasantville shoot, which lasted from March 1st to July 2nd in 1997. Long shoot. And uh, after falling asleep at the wheel on his way home, Hirschman was killed in a car crash. Uh, this led crew members to petition uh, the studio for Brent's rule, which would have limited onset workdays to 14 hours. This measure failed. That's too bad, because that's horrifying. Yeah, Hollywood's a union town, but it's still, I guess you can only go so far with it. Oh, yeah, my uh, my friend Marissa's uh, sister is a PA on, like, film sets and for TV shows, and she already has stories, unfortunately. Yeah, Hirschman receives a dedication in the film's That's credits, good. which um, actually that feels kind of like weak sauce to me when I think about the context of how he died. Yeah. Walsh and uh, Ross's mother, who died during the shoot, are also uh, received dedications. That's nice. Uh, there are over 1,700 digitally manipulated shots in Pleasantville, meaning that it technically has more CGI in it than Star Wars Episode One came out the year after. I know, right? And there's fucking Jar Jar Binks in that movie. <laughs> Pleasantville is the first newly created feature film that was made by scanning and digitizing recorded footage for color manipulation. Most prior examples of this concept involved studios taking old black and white films and colorizing them. But wasn't that done, like, by hand, by coloring the film? Uh, sometimes. Okay, so uh, that's what they would do with, like, really, really old stuff. Yeah, much of the time, these films were in the public domain, and the original director and editors were either dead or uninvolved, and, uh, these colorizations were also ugly as shit. I've uh, seen a few of them. They look really bad. The most infamous examples are probably Ted Turner's colorized versions of King Kong and Casablanca, and those projects were undertaken by a wealthy studio with ample resources. That's like money to burn. Yeah, and they still looked like refried horse shit. So making Pleasantville look good was quite a challenge, because this is a beautiful film. It is beautiful. The colors are super saturated. I mean, it does kind of remind me of, like, the Three Stooges colorizations that came out in, like, the mid-2000s, and they're, like, fine. They just have this very, like, uncanny valley-esque quality to them, which I feel it's Pleasantville, all things considered. I think the color in Pleasantville is heightened, but mm -hmm. not uncanny, but yes. that's just me. I, I agree. The Three Stooges is just a little unsettling. It's like, they, they don't need to be in color. I feel like it's just a fun little experiment. Yeah, according to VFX supervisor Chris Watts, he got the job when he's- Not the murderer. Yeah, different guy. <laughs> he suggested that they shoot Pleasantville on color stock, just negatives. And then desaturate the palette in post. While still arduous, they added the color effects a reel at a time. This process saved time and looked better than every other method attempted. Watts highlights the scene where the cherry blossoms fall onto an otherwise black and white uh, scene. Uh, so gorgeous. <laughs> so beautiful. He shot the hundreds of blossoms in an ultra-vibrant magenta, which made it relatively simple to desaturate them into a more naturally soft pink. A spirit datasyn was used to scan the film stock at 2K re resolution. This device was so new that its engineers hadn't yet designed interface software for it. Ooh, alright. Watts said that it was still more user-friendly than other devices, which were both extremely rare and so complex that they needed expensive specialists to operate. 
Watts said that the toughest part of his job was the scenes with uh, Pleasantville's secret police. They wore fascist armbands in the shoot, uh, which Ross felt was too on-the-nose later on. Mm -hmm. Considering some of the other bits of visual shorthand in Pleasantville, I'm surprised that Ross thought that anything was too blunt or obvious. I mean, my idea of this is that anything that they could have done to depict the, like, the downfall of Pleasantville had to be something that was curbed from actual 1950s America. And unless they wanted to go, like, full KKK, I think the armbands would have been a little too much because, yes, riots, yes, book burnings. Those are all things that, you know, definitely happened in parts of the United States at that time. You know, there wasn't any need for the armbands. <laughs> yeah, Watts had a hell of a time scrubbing away the armbands. You can still see them in a couple of shots. Mm-hmm. One guy in a billowy shirt was particularly painful to alter. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Watts's final touches were in the very last scene. Ross had filmed a hat stand with, uh, without George's hat on it and decided that the hat should be resting there. Watts digitally painted it on there and then decided he was done. <laughs> Watts added, a, it doesn't usually go that way, joking that all VFX supervisors usually have to be dragged away from a movie kicking and screaming. They're almost never satisfied with what they have. Uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a lot of artists. He did say that he intentionally sent good but not too good dailies to the studio so they wouldn't push to release Pleasantville before he finished his work. Smart man. Uh, Digital color correction was still a new thing, and studio executives were suspicious about paying for this treatment. Now it's just deregular. Watts points out that Pleasantville took up two terabytes of data, which was a lot in 1997. They were very proud of themselves. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And he's like, that's my laptop now. (laughs) But that that, that took up like an entire cabinet back in the day. It's like, this is bring, it, bring out the Pleasantville, and it's just a little, a little wheelie cart. <laughs> uh, shortly before release, New Line Cinema ran a promotion offering a free trip to Pleasantville, Iowa. Uh, over 30,000 people entered on this newfangled internet thing, but the winner elected <laughs> to receive a $10,000 cash prize instead. I mean, honestly, same. I'd be like, <laughs> give me that money. Uh, reviews were largely positive, often praising the lighthearted humor, stunning visuals, and affecting performances. Uh, the satirical elements of the film did draw some criticism, with several pundits claiming that Pleasantville's subtext was muddled, underrealized, or ham-fisted. Probably they're the people who would have been angry that people were experiencing feelings. I I do think that the metaphors in Pleasantville are, as I've intimated earlier, a bit on the nose, uh, particularly the apple scene. Yeah. I, I can get why some people would find that to be a little too in your face, but um, I think generally so. speaking, I was willing to let that go, and in fact, I'm in favor of that sort of thing. I think that beating around the bush is not always the best thing to do in writing. Uh, I think the um, show uh, don't tell rule uh, shouldn't be seen as ironclad law, especially since it was introduced in writing circles in the 1950s by the CIA in order to deter people from writing social commentary. Yeah, and you know what? I think if he was around, Rod Serling would have liked Pleasantville. Oh yeah, this is very very much a Twilight Zone type movie. Yeah, it really is a very Twilight Zone type movie, and like, yeah, the Twilight Zone is very on the nose in places, but goddammit if it isn't still relevant today. 
I did come across one or two reviews that um, thought that it was unsettling that Pleasantville has all of these very obvious segregationist and racism metaphors while every single character in the film is Caucasian. Yeah, that doesn't quite float. But then again, I, I was like, oh wow, look, they invented racism. Yeah, I do cringe a little bit every yeah. time I see the colored girlfriend scene. Yeah, I was just like, they couldn't have picked another word that wasn't so loaded, maybe? Well, Your pink e girlfriend? I don't know. Even then, they could have had black characters in Pleasantville. Mm -hmm. Like, there were black characters in predominantly white TV sitcoms during those periods. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them were, you know, playing, like, maids or servants or, like, subservient cackling sidekicks. And I think it would have been an interesting thing to have like a character like that show up and then have them transform uh, as well yeah. I think that would have added uh, dimension to it oh I, I agree you could have made Bill black and it really wouldn't have changed the plot but then again also probably would have had extra race, racial undertones when they ruined his store <laughs> I, did, I did not think of that also, don't don't listen to Ryan and I to talk about racial issues. We are both like the pastiest white people. <laughs> yeah, I, I I went looking to see like yeah. if there was uh, black written critiques mm -hmm. of, of Pleasantville, and yeah, there were a few. Most of them framed Pleasantville around how uh, black characters and TV sitcoms developed from mm -hmm. you, know, you know the early fifties to the nineteen seventies. You know, for instance, the first uh, TV sitcom with a predominantly black cast was Amos and Andy, mm -hmm. and that was eventually canceled because of NAACP protests and then there wasn't another like black-led sitcom for like 15 years in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, is that Pleasantville is supposed to be this incredibly idealized version of the 1950s that never existed. So there, you know, there aren't any gay people either. So, of course, there wouldn't be any, you know, black or brown people either because there's no strife. There's no violence. There's no sexual assault. Nobody has any there's sort no of... Sex, yeah, there's the, no yeah, sex Yeah, there's period. no sex, period. So, like, it's, you know, what would be in the average you know 50s sitcom which would be you know nuclear family and plots as complicated as you know somebody giving their crush cookies those are whitey's cookies <sighs> yeah <laughs> damn it whitey uh, Pleasantville was a box office failure. Which is too bad, because I think it's amazing. Uh, earning $49.6 off its $60 million budget. Uh, Ross didn't have an especially prolific career after Pleasantville Rats. Uh, he directed Seabiscuit and uh, the first Hunger Games. Oh, well, at least he got to be like, Hey, Tobey Maguire, you want to ride a horse? <laughs> Pleasantville got Oscar nominations for its art direction, costume design, and original dramatic score. Uh, it lost to Shakespeare in Love for the first two categories, and uh, Life is Beautiful for the last one. Yeah, it was like Shakespeare in Love came out the same year. Uh, speaking of the music, the score was composed by Randy Newman. Yes, that Randy Newman. Oh my god, really? Damn, I never would have guessed. I didn't think that the score was going to be super memorable, but when I watched that film again and those string rounds came up, especially during the makeup scene, I was like, oh, yeah, this is actually pretty fucking gorgeous. I, I like the end song, which is the cover of Across the Universe. Uh, yes, there is a cover of Across the Universe by Fiona Apple. 
I like it. Yeah, the music video was directed by, um, blanking on his name, guy who directed Boogie Nights. Fiona Apple was dating him at the time. Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, I do think that Fiona Apple does very pretty covers, and that one is no exception. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people see that as, like, the theme song for uh, Pleasantville, because, you know, it takes place during the montage as the film's ending, and, you know, the chorus is, nothing's gonna change my world, which feels a little ironic. <laughs> Another one of those on-the-mose metaphor moments. Everybody got that? Yeah. Needle drops include Gene Vincent's Bebop Alula, uh, Billy Ward and the Domino's uh, 60 Minute Man. Ooh, that one's racy. Dave Brubeck's Take 5, Etta James's At Last, Buddy Holly's Rave On, and Miles Davis's So What. In fact, Take 5 just kind of like segs into So What as David is describing the plot of Huckleberry Finn. I thought that was a very nice transition. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, that brings us to themes. Oh boy, we got a lot of themes here. Uh, yes. Uh, the first thing I wrote down was perception of 1950s America. Uh, the mm -hmm. 50s, particularly in the 70s and in the early Reagan era, were often portrayed as a utopian golden age that we needed to return to in order to protect American values. Back then, they said, prosperity was abundant, prices were reasonable, children respected their parents, and proper values held sway. Well, when you think about it, the 50s as a cultural decade was incredibly long. Like, you could argue it, like, a few years after the end of World War II to JFK's assassination. So that's at least, like, 13 to 15 years right there. Uh, it wasn't at all like those troubling, upsetting, and hedonistic things that came about in the 60s, for instance. Yeah. Those things led us astray and should be countermanded. It sort of uh, led into the rise of the evangelical mu uh, movement towards the, uh, the end of the 60s as a pushback against all of those various um, reforms and uh, sociopolitical movements. Well, I think that after every period of great social progress, there is an immediate reactive backlash. We're living in one right now. Yeah, and the reactive backlash of the, you know, 60s into the 70s. And then is, you get Ronald fucking Reagan. Was, uh, yeah, predicated on all those evangelical groups getting together to fight segregation, and then they realized that they lost, but they, they built up this network while they were losing. And I was like, well, we should use this for something to build political power. Well, well what else is out there? And they're like, well, what about abortion? And there yep. we go. That's the one they settled on. And they're yep. still fighting and it now. Yep. Exactly. So it's like we think about how much has like changed in the last 20 years. And then now you've experienced everybody, you know, certain people in parts of the country are just really upset that you can't shut the door anymore on a lot of social issues. And of course, the civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, the Cold War, the environmental crusade, and even gay rights campaigns were well underway in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. They just weren't being depicted sympathetically in mainstream media or in the case of network TV sitcoms at all in most cases. Uh, yeah. In this respect, Pleasantville can be read as what could happen if the reality of the 1950s started creeping into the mythical 1950s that Reaganite boomers were fantasizing about. Uh, I will reiterate here that America was never like uh, Leave It to Beaver or Ozzy and Harriet. Even those programs were a simulation of aspirational normalcy. Certain boomers only think otherwise because they were four years old in 1958 and therefore ignorant of most of the harsh truths found in the world around them. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like overtly nostalgicize the 90s, you know? Yeah, I do realize that the 90s felt peaceful for me at the time, but that's because I was eight years old. Exactly. And also, I was living in a bubble. Like, even my hometown of Danvers, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. was called Bubble Town. And... <laughs> Yeah, all of the comforts of the 90s that I enjoyed as a middle-class white kid in the United States was not universally spread out to other people in the world. So the mm -hmm. idea of the 90s as the end of history, as I mentioned in the Daria episode, <laughs> was only ever the case for a very brief window for a very small demographic. And you know what? I feel like the, the 90s, especially as you and I get older, is going to get kind of the same treatment because, again, like the 50s, the 90s were an incredibly long cultural decade you got fall of the berlin wall to 9 11 again 14 years to have this sort of like you know cemented as like how things are gonna be like this is how you know oh i think we're already there in terms of nothing oh yeah i know people are already like writing about the 90s and i see like i see all these like little like gen x kids where they're like i'm a 90s baby and i'm like bitch your necklace says 1998 on it you are not a 90s child you mean gen z gen z whatever you know what I you know what I meant is talking about. <laughs> anyway, the next thing I wrote down was repression. Oh boy, yeah, that's this movie in a nutshell. Uh, some of the most idiosyncratic critiques I've read of Pleasantville were found in evangelical Christian forums. You don't say. Unsurprisingly, the consensus is that Pleasantville is immoral. Usually, their objections boil down to the film equating premarital sex with personal growth, which I, to the shock of no one, consider a shallow reading of the film. Yeah, it's a, it literally explicitly says it's not because of sex. Yeah, one review claimed that Pleasantville's corruption lies in how it equates wanting something with gaining the enlightenment of color. Uh, the writer then pivoted to how the earthly wants celebrated in Pleasantville are hollow when contrasted against the rewards found in serving God. I also disagree with this take, but I think it's interesting in how it sees Pleasantville as a celebration of carnality and hedonism. Uh, this is obviously refuted by Mary Sue not gaining her colors through sex, as Rachel just said, but mm -hmm. rather through expanding her intellectual curiosity. I mean, come on, Christian, in 1998, this is stated text, not even subtext. Yeah, and, like, David gets his color because he stands up for what's right in a culminating moment of defending his TV mom from teenage rapists. So yeah, gaining color in Pleasantville doesn't arise from want. I mean, also, characters with clear goals and desires do not automatically lose their black and white. George wants his dinner. He doesn't turn color because of that. <laughs> I know, and like, all those get angry. They're experiencing, like, I think the joy of breaking something. Not like the joy of breaking something, but, you know, that feeling, that rush. They all stay black and white. Yep. Uh, while this is one of the few things in the film that isn't explicitly spelled out for the viewer, uh, I feel that the citizens of Pleasantville gain their colors not through want, but awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, Pleasantville is built on a foundation of denial, of repression, of puritanical abstention, of a refusal to confront or even acknowledge discomforting truths. Every character in Pleasantville that gains color does so when they finally recognize some part of themselves that they've been willfully ignoring. And yes, that can take the form of sexual awakening. Sex has centuries of stigma attached to it, and many of us are trained to have unhealthy relationships with it. 
Still, that is demonstrably not the sole piece of the human condition that Pleasantville comments upon. Ultimately, at its core, I think Pleasantville is about epistemics. Uh, it's about honesty. Pleasantville wants to say that we can't be fully realized people until we're open about ourselves to ourselves. And we're all far more than just pleasant. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it kind of comes down to, like, again, we're like, you know, I, I, the today at work I talked to, you know, somebody, um, they were teaching in Florida and just talking about having, how difficult that was in that, like, you know, they're going through books, they're removing anything that is, like, upsetting or complicated. And I think that the people who embraced the black and white life of Pleasantville, they just want to look away from anything that's complicated to never acknowledge it. And I think it's, you know, again, awareness. I also do think that part of it is, you know, acknowledging that life is complicated, it's beautiful, and it's ugly. Many things. Not just pleasant. And I, I do think that a lot of people who want to deny these unpleasant truths put themselves in a position where they are, consider themselves the arbiters of whether or not it's acceptable, mm-hmm. and you have to prove it to them. And all they have to do is just withhold their approval eternally, and they just win. It's a nice position because they set it up for themselves. And, um, you know, that's just the sort of, like, just asking questions deal for it. Which mm-hmm. leads me to my next point, the cult of civility. Ooh, yes! Uh, A few years ago, I had a nasty argument with a family member over whether it was appropriate to compare Trumpism to fascism. Uh, This happened in the backdrop of the Trump administration ripping migrant children from their parents and cramming them into internment camps. This struck me as objectively fashy, but the other guy disagreed. Uh, He didn't even dispute that the camps were ethically horrifying. He just argued that labeling them as such would make Trump supporters uncomfortable and, by his reasoning, less willing to be persuaded against supporting him. Uh, I disagreed again, citing the existence of fucking concentration camps as a smoking gun. If those couldn't persuade Trumpists to abandon him on moral grounds, they're beyond appeals to reason or conscience. Still, my relative remained firm. Nobody's going to change their mind if you're rude to them, he insisted. Uh, Lefties would get more conservatives on board if they were less abrasive about such matters. This line of thought seems to willfully ignore that MAGA types aren't exactly polite themselves, or that the conservative stance on most of our major issues are just widely unpopular. Yeah, and you know what? Like, I'll, I'll share the story. So, like, at my job, we were requiring masks. We continued to require masks in the store for a very long time. And, you know, every time somebody came in, it was a gamble. And I would have people wearing, like, stuff that really made me think, oh, you are, like, you're fashy. You're, like, Oath Keeper style. And, but the one incident that really stood out to me, though, is this guy comes in and he doesn't have a mask. And I say, hey, you have to have a mask in here. And there was a sign, despite, you know, I work in a bookstore. People did not read. You know, my boss was with me and she says, hey, you know, you, you got to put on a mask. And, you know, and he started to argue about it. And she says, well, then, you know, you have to leave. And then, you know, and he really started protesting it. And my boss just told him to get the fuck out of her store. And then later he came back in and said, well, you could have asked nicely. And this is the height of the pandemic. And that stuck with me. It's like, well, he was never going to do it. He was never going to listen anyway. But he can say, well, you asked, you asked meanly. And, you know, I had to use my teacher voice on a bunch of people. This one guy I was like, sir, can you please put your mask on over your nose? And he's like, I'm going to get to it. You don't need to remind me. 
And I just said, well, you have to do it when you come in the store. And if you don't like it, you can leave. His wife apologized to me when they left the store. And yeah, when it comes to situations like that, where one person is just like that and mm -hmm. the other person isn't, and there's just... You did something bad because you didn't ask nicely. It's like, I'm not asking nicely when I'm asking you to do something for the safety and comfort of everyone around you. And the people who put themselves in between who are just like, who have appointed themselves the neutral party is that, my reasoning is that if one is neutral in a dispute between reality and an obvious lie, the neutral party is siding with the lie. Oh yeah. It's like the quote by um, Desmond Tutu. It's like, neutrality helps the oppressor. And yeah, and uh, the, the people who want to do the most awful, incredibly horrible things, uh, the people who are in favor of genocide and stuff like that, they don't need everybody on board. They just need enough people to not give a shit or enough people to just not acknowledge what's happening in front of it. You know, and um, I also reasoned that tone policing is, more often than not, a concern troll move. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been routinely criticized for speaking harsh words to family members who endorse neo-Nazi talking points. The people who tell me to be nicer never seem to level these criticisms against the guy preaching the Great Replacement Theory, even when they're uncouth about it. Yeah, like, I had a moment with a family member because the family member was talking about just how awful all those, how awful Harvey Weinstein is, and I just said, yeah, just like Trump, you know, grab him by the pussy, and, he, and the family member was like, I, I can't believe you said that, and I'm like, I'm just quoting the president. Yeah, this sort of thing has recently manifested with me on the subject of trans rights. I routinely hear people say something along the lines of, I'd support trans rights, but I find the activists so pushy and annoying that I can't be an ally. <sighs> They're alienating people like me, and they need people like me. This strikes me as really disingenuous. Uh, you either believe people deserve civil rights, or you don't believe they deserve civil rights. If their status as citizens being contingent on whether or not they ever annoy you or make you feel uncomfortable, like if that's your situation, mm -hmm. you aren't an ally and you never were. Yeah, I think that a lot of times people forget that you can find things and people annoying, but finding some, realizing that someone's a bad person is entirely different. There are plenty of people that I think are annoying, but am I going to fight for their humanity? Absolutely. Like, uh, there's this beer commercial from a few years ago where, like, these two people who don't know each other solve, like, a puzzle together, which ends up being, like, a, a bar, and, and they're supposed to, like, have a drink, and then they play this video of the two of them disagreeing on some core issue, and the idea is that, like, you know, after they spent that time and had that bonding experience, they can put aside their differences and have a friendly beer with each other, and... One group was um, a transphobe and a trans woman. And after he discovered that she was a trans woman, he like gets up to leave like phobe, but comes back and then offers his hand to her. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, is like you're presenting those points of views as if they're like equal and opposite. And they no, are. they're not. The, the bigot's viewpoint is that this trans woman doesn't count as a person and that their existence needs to be stamped out. Whereas the trans person is like, I'm a human being and I don't want this person to stamp me out. Like they're not the same. There's a different level of risk involved in interactions like that. And yeah. expecting her to have a friendly beer with him and to like appeal to his sense of humanity is a bit much. Yeah. It's really kind of gross, you know? I mean, if it was a, you know, a trans woman and a cis dude having a debate about pineapple going on pizza, that's one thing, you know? Or like, I don't know, 
something else innocuous. Like when I was teaching ESL, my students loved to debate things and it was really hard for me to find. I was like, non-controversial debate topics because they would they would want to go on because it was you know a great way to practice their english but i was like okay uh how about we do helmet laws like that was the most controversial thing that we talked about was helmet laws you know the handful of people who run things like the town fathers in pleasantville uh, find it to their benefit to keep certain uncomfortable truths eternally in the debate stage you know, climate change, for example, and it helps them to paint people aware of these uncomfortable truths as combative, disruptive, uncivil, and unpleasant. This makes allowing injustice to continue to appear as the easy, peaceful path. Oh yeah, I mean, I've seen political cartoons from the mid-60s basically saying like, oh, look at Martin Luther King Jr. He led a riot. How are they, how are black people going to get rights if, they, if they're just going to go out and riot? And I'm like, oh my God, wow, things never change, you know? Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. was depicted <laughs> as an uppity rabble rouser who was just causing problems in white America. White America did not have a majority positive opinion of him until several decades after he died i think the exact year was 1986 mm -hmm. but he yeah dead for 18 years at that point uh, yeah allowing injustice to continue in a way that makes it as the easy peaceful path also paints injustice as the natural inevitable and possibly righteous uh, path to go but down as well mm -hmm. you know and, and the uh, the enlightened centrist who views tranquility over justice is by my perspective an enabler Mm -hmm. yeah, Pleasantville is definitely a good microcosm of that. Yeah, another thing I wanted to bring back up, getting back to um, gay rights movements in the mm -hmm. 1950s, I've used this one before, but, you know, the very earliest gay rights activist groups, um, they insisted that they were going to appeal to the conservative values of America during those times and demonstrate that they're not so different from Joe and Jane homeowner. So they, whenever they did their civil rights marches, they dressed in suits. They wore nice dresses if they were cis ladies. You know, they played all the, all the rules. Um, they responded to all the people decades later who were like, those pride parades are too flamboyant. How am I going to bring their ki my kids to that? Mm -hmm. And the result for that is that conservatives and reactionaries branded them as perverts who wanted to corrupt their children. Like, there's no way to placate these people. Yep. If you play by their rules, if you argue on their terms, if you allow them to control the conversation, they're just still going to say what they want. Like, people right now are labeling Joe Biden a center-right Democrat, a fucking communist. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, Doesn't I, matter what he does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I had, I have relatives who were complaining about Pope Francis, who's like, for the, for the Pope, for the leader of the Catholic Church is a far more progressive on a grand scheme of things, although I think there's a lot more he could certainly be doing. Someone was like, he's a Marxist. Ooh, I'm like, why? Is it because he cares about climate change? <laughs> like this week, Joe Biden approved oil drilling in the Arctic and he hasn't closed the concentration camps for refugee toddlers yet. Yay! Like, really, in a lot of ways, he's just Trump who's less of a dick about it. Mm-hmm. But anyways, that's everything I had to say about Pleasantville. Um, you wanted to mention a point about how the 1950s were always oh, horny. yeah, like, that's the thing. Like, everyone kind of forgets that, like, sex has always existed and it's always a part of the culture. You know, you have that book of, like, ancient pornography, right? 
it's not art. Art. Sorry. It's not all. It's not all ancient pornography. Yes, there's ancient Egyptian stuff in there, yeah. but it goes through history. There's like it has like Tom of Finland in it, and like you know Victorian stuff. Yeah, it ends with Tom of Finland, and then in the middle you see like Rembrandt sketching his wife pissing. Yeah. <laughs> or like you know, it, it's true though. It's like it, and everyone knows like a whole like big like controversy, quote unquote, because. Some of James Joyce's love letters to his wife, Nora, were discovered. And my man liked farts. He liked farts and he liked asses. And you know what? I was like reading this and I'm like, A, you're reading somebody's private messages to his wife. And honestly, they're really just endearing, you know? Like if you look at Queen Victoria's diary entries. She like was she's, horny for Albert. She, she's stereotyped as like this prim and proper lady who's just like, oh, well, if you have to have sex, lie back and think of England so you can sire a proper heir. But as Rachel pointed out, even the parts that were not censored by the royal family, they're pretty steamy. Oh, yeah, exactly. And like, and I saw this thing on, on Twitter. Someone shared a story and she's like, hi. So my grandmother and her siblings decided to go back and reread the letters between their parents during the war. And they had to stop because the letters were absolutely filthy. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's like, it always happens. And, and I heard other stories where people were talking about, like, what's, like, something funny that your older relative used to say? And someone said that, like, my grandmother, while she was fading away from dementia, she used to say how good grandpa used to dick her down back in the day. And it's like, <gasps> yup, see? You know, the 50s, people were still, you know, having sex and having relationships. Gay and straight, monogamous, non-monogamous. You know, we're all here, aren't we? Yeah, I I know right it's like your great-grandparents definitely had sex at some point okay well is there anything else you'd like to add oh, to this? I, I don't know i mean i guess it goes to show you that like we should never look at the past with rose-colored glasses because the idealized version of like i don't know the 50s or 60s it never existed and every time i'm looking on like 60s and 50s history blog i see some girl being like i wish i lived in the 60s and i'm like Bitch, no, you don't. You don't. You can still go out and buy poofy dresses and buy a typewriter and wear red lipstick, but you do not wish that you lived in the past. Especially since, like, the trad wife is coming back. And it's just so stupid. There's, like, this one TikTok of some, like, I'm a stay-at-home girlfriend. And it's just the funniest thing to me because she's, like, dressed up and looks like Marilyn Monroe. And there's the guy next to her, and he's just this basic-ass white guy and, like... A white button down. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're doing everything you can, and he's not trying at all. Yeah, it's like he needs to be wearing at least a three-piece piece suit. <laughs> okay, that that's all. Uh, yeah, I, I guess if I'm going to boil Pleasantville down to, like, one sound bite at the very end of this episode, it's like, if someone tells you they want to make America great again, remember that they are very vague about when that was and what elements they're going to put in. Yeah, and honestly... That time period never really existed. All right, thanks for listening, everybody.